Um, In our church, for the last several weeks, we have been studying uh, the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church in Revelation, or to the churches in Revelation. And so these are seven letters that Jesus gave to seven actual churches um, in seven different cities throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And in each letter, Jesus encourages these churches. He'll encourage a church for their strengths, but then he'll also rebuke them for their weaknesses. And in each letter, what he does is he calls them to something greater. He calls them to the life that he desires for them. And in these letters, what we see is a vision for what Jesus wants his church to be and what he wants us to be. As his followers. And this week, Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum, which is the northernmost city of the seven cities. And this church, they were prone to compromise their ethics in the face of temptation. And I think there's a word for us this morning. He says in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12 And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him. Who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a whole lot, as there are in all these letters. There's a lot that's going on right there. So I want to jump right into it. And one of the first things I see in this passage is that Jesus acknowledges that where we live influences who we become. Where we are living influences who we are becoming. See, in each of the letters to these seven churches, Jesus begins by saying, I know to most churches, he says, I know your works to the church last week in Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I see you. I see what's going on in your life. I understand your struggle. I see what you are doing. I I know, he says, I know what you're doing. I know what you're going through. But to this church in Pergamum, he doesn't say, I know, I see, I know your works. Or I know your struggles. He says, I know where you live. He says, I know where you live. And that's actually a a really a gracious thing that he says. Because Jesus is acknowledging that where they live has a profound influence on how they live. And who they are becoming. And this is true for you and me both as, as well. The place you grew up. The places you have lived in your life. The place where you live now. All have a powerful influence over how you think. How you interact with others, the type of foods you like, the type of music you listen to, how you understand and grapple with certain political issues, where you grew up, where you're from and where you've lived shapes all those things. We were just I was just talking with a group of people this morning about how where you're from shapes the way you drive 
You know, if you grew up in nice little suburb land, you don't drive as aggressive as you do if you grew up driving on the BQE. But on the flip side of that, if you're in the suburbs and somebody honks at you, it's usually going to be accompanied with, you know, another gesture. Here, honking, it's not, a, it's not personal. Move. It's all it is. Where we're from, where we live, has a profound influence on who we become. See, the temptation, and, and listen, we're a diverse church. I mean, you look around this church, people are from everywhere, all over the globe, all over our nation. And we all come from different places. Therefore, we all have different ways of seeing the world. Even if you're from Brooklyn, if you grew up in Sunset Park, your experiences cause you to see the world very differently than someone who grew up in Greenpoint. You see, where we live in many ways shapes who we become and the temptations we face, the anxieties we feel, the people we befriend, all in some ways are directly influenced by the very places that we live and work and dwell. And for these Christians in Pergamum, Jesus is acknowledging that they live in a city where it is very, very difficult to be a follower of Jesus and to be faithful to the way of Jesus. See, Jesus is acknowledging that there is something unique about the people and the culture and the expectations and the stresses and the temptations of living in Pergamum that make it a challenging place to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I understand But he adds, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And that you live in Pergamum where Satan has his throne. Now, a lot of scholars disagree on what this means. Some will say that this is a reference to a throne that was built to Zeus in Pergamum. Uh, Some will say it was reference to a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing that was in Pergamum. It could be those things. Some say it had to do with emperor worship. Some say that it has to do with nationalism. There's, we see from history that um, the people in Pergamum, their patriotism often crossed the line into idolatry. And some scholars say that when Jesus talks about where Satan's throne is, he's referencing those things. We're not entirely sure what Jesus is referencing here. So to be honest, I like what one author, Rene Schlepfer, says. Schlepfer says, Jesus recognizes this place to be unusually full of evil influences and pressures to abandon or compromise the faith. What are they exactly? We don't know. But that's a simple way of understanding what's going on in Pergamum. This is a place that is just out of the ordinary, full of evil influences and pressures to abandon or compromise the faith for Christians. And listen, I, I love New York City. But there are some unique influences and there are some unique pressures in this city for followers of Jesus, aren't there? The influences and pressures to abandon the faith are all around us. See, following Jesus in New York is very different than following Jesus in rural Oklahoma or suburban California. It just is. Um, In fact, you know, I've got friends who are pastors all over the country and even just a few weeks ago, went to a conference and I was having dinner with a bunch of my pastor friends. And, you know, I, it's easy for me to get frustrated with them because we're talking about ministry. We're talking, I'm talking about, Hey, here's what's going on in my church. Here's what my people are dealing with. Here's what's going on in our city. And they're like, yeah, I totally get it. What you should do is dot, 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 dot. And I'm like, and I want to be gracious, but I'm like, bro, you don't get it. (laughs) 
Like, I, I'm so glad that that is working for you in Atlanta. But you, it's different in my city. You don't know where I live. But the truth is, Jesus does know. He knows where we live. He knows where you work. He knows what your family is like. He knows the very unique pressures that we face and that you face. He knows what they face in Pergamum and he knows what we face in Brooklyn. He says, I know where you live. And then second thing I want you to see is that they were faithful, but they were also compromised. See verse 13, it says, I know where you live. Satan's throne is there. It's a difficult place. But verse 13, he says, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says to them, look, you live in a city where there are temptations and pressures to abandon the faith that are greater than all the six other cities I've written letters to as well. But man, you have not denied me. You've held fast to my name, even when it was difficult, he says to them. And then he mentions this guy Antipas, who was killed for being faithful. Now, and we don't know uh, a lot about Antipas. Some think he might have been the pastor of this church at one point. But what we do know of Antipas is from history, it tells us that he was martyred under the reign of Emperor Domitian inside a brass bull. Does anybody know about execution by brass bull? This is brutal. They would take a hollowed out brass bull. And they would put people in the bull and then they would light a fire, set a fire underneath the bull. And they would essentially roast to death inside a hollowed out brass bull. And this is how he this is how Antipas was killed. History tells us. And it says Jesus says that he died because he was a faithful witness. So he was killed because of his faith in Christ. And these Christians in Pergamum, they probably witnessed to this. Yet they did not abandon their faith. I mean, can you imagine for a moment if the doors kicked in right now and some people arrest, like took me and handcuffed me and took me and just like uh, horrifically executed me in front of you guys. And then said, hey, this is what happens if you follow Jesus. Uh, How many people, how many of you would be here next Sunday? It'd be hard, wouldn't it? (laughs) I'd be like, I'm going to, I'll just, I'll, I'll listen to a podcast and some worship music at home. How many of you would come back the next Sunday? Not, I mean, that, that, that's tough. But they did. They kept coming back and they stayed faithful to the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, you held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. That is a compliment to this church. These Christians were courageous in that way. But Jesus, he's not finished with them. He says, way to go. You've been faithful. But I do have a few things against you, he says in verse 14. He says, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus references two types of teaching that some in this church have embraced. And he mentions Balaam and Balak, that situation. These are Old Testament characters. And the story of Balak and Balaam is that Together, they plotted the spiritual and moral downfall of the people of Israel. And they did it. The way they, the way they caused the downfall of the people of Israel is that they sent their most beautiful women and their best food to seduce them. And Balaam and Balak knew that if the men of Israel become consumed by sexual immorality, their hearts would drift from their devotion to God. 
And that they would lose their sense of purpose. They would lose their sense of calling. And that is exactly what happened. They were seduced by the ways of the Moabites. And Jesus then also mentions the Nicolaitans. He says, in the Nicolaitans, they, the, remember Ephesus a few weeks ago. Jesus commended them for not obeying the, teach, the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But the Nicolaitans, essentially what they taught is they came in to the church. They claimed to be followers of Jesus. And they said, hey, look, God loves you. God forgives you. He doesn't hold your sin against you. You are free in Christ. And I'm going, check, 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 check. Yes, we agree to those things. And they were saying, because you're free in Christ, though, you can do whatever you want. You can participate in temple prostitution and God will keep forgiving you. You can participate in all the pagan feasts. You can do whatever you want. Participate in the orgies. Do whatever you want because God's grace is limitless and he will keep forgiving. He will keep forgiving. He will keep forgiving. Today, this is in theology terms, we call this antinomianism. And Paul warned against this in the scriptures, didn't he? Because when he talks about the gospel, he says, you're free in Christ. And then he, he anticipates this objection. He says, so some would say, well, can I sin all the more so that grace may abound? And Paul says, may it never be. You don't understand. If you think that because of God's grace, you can just do what you want. He says, you never understood God's grace. Because when you understand God's grace, it should transform you. And the Nicolaitans, they taught this. They said, look, God forgives, God loves, God, I mean, you are free in Christ, so do whatever you please. And I think underlining all of that is they said, hey, look, you need to compromise. It's difficult. I mean, you saw what happened to Antipas. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. You need the favor of the people. You blend in. You don't want to cause unnecessary problems for yourself. So you don't want to be seen as weird. You saw, remember last week, the church in Smyrna? They didn't participate in all that stuff and they were going through persecution. So look, do the temple stuff, do the whatever. Just you, you need to be relevant if, you, if as a church you want to succeed. Tertullian in the first century said that the Nicolaitans used their freedom to justify and maintain their desire for lust and luxury. And I would add even status among the Pergamum people. So here's what's happening in Pergamum. These Christians, they didn't abandon the faith. Their belief has stayed intact, but they compromised it. They compromised their faith. Their ethics were shaped more by the city that they lived in than by the kingdom of God that they claimed to be citizens of. And the result is that this is so baffling to me. The result is that they were willing to die for Jesus. But they had difficulty living for him. I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back, no turning back. But yet they kept turning back and turning back. And when I read the seven letters to, this, to the seven churches, I'll be honest. This one probably hits closest to home with me. And I think it probably does for a lot of Christians in New York. And here's what I mean. You're here this morning. <laughs> like you're here. There are a hundred things you could be doing. It's New York. There's a million things you could be doing right now, but you're here. You're faithful to the name of Jesus. You haven't abandoned your faith, even though you've probably at times been ridiculed or scoffed at here in this city. And even though there are temptations everywhere in this city to make you want to call it quits and walk away from it all. You're here and you ought to be commended. You're here. You've remained faithful to Jesus. But how many of us are ethics? Our worldview, 
Our actions, our words are shaped more by the city that we live in than shaped by the way of Jesus. The way you use your money. Is that informed by your commitment to the kingdom of Christ? Or is it informed by the way of our city? The way you use your power or privilege, if you have any, is it informed by your commitment to the way of Jesus? Or is it informed by the fact that you live in this city? What about our approach to politics? I mean, we just had two debates this week and they're just going to keep heating up. Here's what, as America, this is just, as America becomes less religious, here's what's going to happen. And here's what is happening. Politics is going to become the religion of our culture. It already is becoming that. As, as religion in America declines, politics becomes the de facto religion. And two things happen when, that, when, when this becomes a reality. One, if you don't have in your worldview a spiritual realm where there is actual evil, meaning that there's Satan and there's demons and there's something behind the evil in the world, then you still have to answer where does evil come from. And if you don't have a, a worldview that includes real evil, what you will do is you evil becomes the other political party. And so we, what ends up happening is we no, we no longer see our neighbors as simply as people we disagree with and want to persuade, but as enemies that must be destroyed. You watch the divide that's happening in our nation. It's not just that Republicans are people that we disagree with and want to persuade or Democrats are people we disagree with and want to persuade. It is now that they are the source of evil in the world and they don't need to be persuaded. They need to be annihilated. That is the political culture we live in today because we're becoming less and less religious and we have, we have to answer the problem of evil. And if you don't have a Satan, then where does it go? It becomes your political enemies. But also what happens when politics becomes the religion of our culture and when it takes supreme importance in our society is that nuance is not allowed. So it's not only that the other party becomes our enemy, but if you don't embrace your, in, your party's entire platform, you're not allowed to have a voice. And so, and let me just humbly say, and I really mean this humbly. As a Christian, there are platforms in both major political parties that we should reject outright in both parties. Yet what I see, and I see it every day, Christians, every day for the sake of political expediency and because of cultural pressure, open their arms to ideologies and policies that are antithetical to the way of Jesus. And we say, well, I have to compromise in this area so that I can win in this area. That is not the way of Jesus. We have compromised and we have bought the lie that the kingdom of America is more important to the future of this world than the kingdom of Christ. And we need to repent. We've become compromised. And this is why Christians watch in this next election cycle. We have become easily exploitable. We become a voting block to be manipulated, not a people to be listened to. We don't have influence. We are exploited. What other ways do we compromise in this city? How about the way you treat your time or your body? The pace of this city. We're encouraged to hustle. The city that never sleeps. So what we're, do, what we, we're tempted to ignore Jesus' teachings on rest and Sabbath. 
Because we're told in this city that you've got to hustle and you've got to break yourself for the first seven years of your career so that you can rest later. And what we end up doing is our depression rates skyrocket, anxiety attacks come, and suicide rates go through the roof. And we, because we're punishing our bodies in pursuit of the American dream when the way of Jesus commands us to slow down and give our bodies rest. See, we've been seduced by the way of the city. Finally, the way we use our bodies. Is that informed by your commitment to the way of Jesus or is it informed by your commitment to, the, to our city? See, this was the very issue in Pergamum. These Christians adopted the sexual vision of Pergamum over and above the sexual ethics of Jesus. And Jesus says, ah, don't do that. I have that against you. And so what I want to say is you're here this morning. You're here. You're faithful. You have not abandoned him. But how many of us has an area of our lives where we are tempted to compromise daily? That's what was happening in Pergamum, and that's what happens in our hearts. And they compromised in key areas of their discipleship to Jesus for the sake of being relevant and respected or for their own pleasure. And Jesus says, I, I have that against you. And I think these words ought to sober us up a little bit because sometimes we don't even think about the air we breathe. We just think we live in this culture. And we're going about doing our thing. But this city, if it, it will disciple you. And we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when this city tries to pull us in one direction, we have to stop and think, what direction does the kingdom of God pull me in and go in that way? Because we are so prone, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We think small compromises here and there make little difference in our spiritual lives. But Jesus warns us with strong words. And remember, these are Jesus's words. These aren't my words. Jesus is the one who says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's judgment. And we read this and we're perhaps tempted to say, well, okay, well, what is a church in Pergamon supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What they need is stricter morality. That's what we're tempted to say. But remember the church in Ephesus. They rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Jesus commended them for their morality. They, They were good. But morality was not enough to make them near to God. He said they lacked love and he warned them to repent. So what's the answer? Is it moralism? Is it relativism? What does Jesus want from us? Jesus doesn't call us to shape up. Jesus doesn't even call this church to get serious about their morality. What he calls is he calls them to come to him. And trust him and receive from him because Jesus says this is where transformation happens. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. And no one knows except the one who receives it. Come and receive what Jesus offers. That is what Jesus wants from the church. Does he want us to be a moral church that's high and mighty and pure and looks down and more, feels morally superior to all the other churches and all the other, you know, uh, pagans and uh, sinners and rebels that aren't like us? No. Does he call us to shape shift and be chameleons so that people in the culture will like us and so that we'll have favor and then we can slide the gospel in through the back door? No, he doesn't call us to be relativists. He calls us to come to him. And when you come to him, John, the gospel of John says, uh, abide in him and you will bear much fruit. And Jesus tells these Pergamum Christians about three gifts of the gospel that they would receive. Three gifts if they come 
to him that would transform the very shape of their lives and give them courage to be uncompromising in the face of temptation. And I I want you to see God's grace here. Like we think, oh, like those Christians who compromise, those sexually immoral Christians that have done those things or they believe these things or or, or those people that have failed in this way or done this way. We love to throw stones on them and think God would ne- could never welcome them back. But Jesus right here, his grace, he doesn't give up. They had messed up royally and Jesus doesn't give up on them. He says, come back, repent. And we think that word is so mean. Repent just means, hey, come my arms are open. I, I, I'm not holding it against you. Come back home. He didn't give up on them. And he says, if you come back to me, you'll receive. First thing he says, hidden manna. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is a reference to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They didn't know what they were going to eat from day to day. But God always provided hidden manna. And it was always enough. And many of us, I think the reason we compromise in our lives, the, way we com- the reason we compromise our ethics, the reason we compromise our convictions is because we don't really trust that Jesus can satisfy all of our longings. We're afraid that if we're fully faithful to the way of Jesus, we'll miss out on certain gifts that this world has to offer. So we dabble and we compromise. And the Israelites faced that exact temptation, the temptation to worship idols, the temptation to desire food in Egypt where they were enslaved they wanted the food of the place that enslaved them. They're like, well, we knew, we, we knew, we saw the food before it came. We didn't have to wait for Jesus to provide it every day. We could hoard it. But Jesus always gave them what they needed, and there was always enough manna to eat. And the bread that Jesus offers these Pergamum Christians is far greater than any food that they ate at the pagan feast that they love to attend. And what I want to tell you is that if you're here this morning and you're afraid, That if you obey Jesus, you will miss out. Remember the manna. He always gives you what you need. He always sustains his people. He always provides for us when we need it. You will never grow hungry if you're obedient to Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Second thing, gift of the gospel is a white stone. I love this. And I will give you a white stone. You're like, what? A white stone? In Greco-Roman culture, there was something called a tessera. And I think most scholars think this is what they're referring to here. And a tessera was a white stone that had been imprinted in some way. And it was often given to retired gladiators or veterans, champion athletes, or other elites. I mean, it gave them VIP access to public events, festivals, feasts, parties. I mean, it was like the American Express black card. Or a key to the city. It got you access to wherever you wanted to go. And if you had the tessera, you had access to anywhere you wanted to go in the city. In Pergamum. I don't know if you watch the Marvel movies. But the tesseract stone. I don't know if they got it from this. But it, it just aligns, doesn't it? That tesseract stone. If you have possession of the tesseract stone, you can go anywhere in the universe. Like that. Like, where in the world is Loki right now? Where is he? We got to tune in to the, you know, the next movie. The point is this. If you're in Christ, you have been given an inheritance. All that is his is yours. You have the white stone. 
If you have the white stone, you can go anywhere. Jesus says, repent, come to me, I will give you the white stone. And if you have that which I give, that white stone, all that is mine is yours. Namely, the very kingdom of God. In this life, in this city, faithfulness to Jesus may mean you get left out of some places. You might be excluded at times. Jesus says, that's okay. Because I'm giving you a white stone. And the white stone gives you access to the very throne of God. The very presence of God for all eternity. And if you have that stone, no one can keep you out. And what is that stone? It's Jesus himself. When you you trust in Christ, the one who died on a cross for your sins and defeated death by rising from the dead and says, anyone who calls upon me, I will become their Savior and their Lord. What that means is that you hold Christ in your hands. And you can walk through the gates of the kingdom of God with confidence because you have been given the stone from Jesus. And then finally... The scripture says, Jesus says, you will be given a new name. There'll be a name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You got any baseball fans in here? You guys remember Tommy Lasorda, the manager, his former manager of Los Angeles Dodgers. And he's just a funny guy, always great interviews. And he was telling a story one time. And one day he's telling a story about this skinny kid that joined his team. That, that got called up from the minors, this skinny, gangly, like six foot five, you know, weighed a buck 35 kid walks into the clubhouse and wasn't confident, had slouch shoulders and did not look and did not believe he could be a major league pitcher. His name was Oral Hershiser. And Lasorda saw him and he said, that kid needs some confidence because he's going to get eaten alive in the major leagues. Little skinny kid with a name like Oral isn't striking fear into major league batters, is it? And so Lasorda said on Oral Hershiser's first start that he ever had as a major leaguer, he said, son, I'm never going to call you Oral again. From now on, you are the bulldog. And Oral Hershiser was given a new name by his manager and the rest of his major league career was him becoming who his manager declared him to be. That skinny, insecure kid named Oral became a Cy Young Award winner, a three-time All-Star, a World Series champion, and a World Series MVP, and only time will tell, but likely a Hall of Famer. See, Oral Hershiser's career was, his whole career, it was him becoming the Bulldog, becoming what his manager had already declared him to be. And the Christian life can seem so daunting at times, can't it? Jesus calls us to great things, to great faithfulness, to great, to great morality. He calls us to that, to great generosity. He calls us to resist temptation, to lay down our lives for the sake of others, that sacrifice. And we hear that and we're like, I am not strong enough to do that. I can't do it. I can't resist that temptation that keeps coming back and keeps coming back. I can never be who God expects me to be, we often think. But God never asks you to become who he expects you to be. He asks you to become who he has already declared you to be. When you come to Jesus, you are given a new name. Your name 
used to be sinner. Your name is now saint. Your name used to be Adam. It's now Christ. You say, well, I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like Jesus. The Christian life is becoming who you have already declared, been declared to be. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. He's going to do it. Your Christian life is becoming who God already sees you to be. You are covered in Christ. You have the white stone. When God looks at you, that God, the judge, God, the father looks at you. He does not see your sin, your mistakes, your mess, your shame. He sees Jesus's perfect righteousness for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. That is what God sees when he looks at you. Become that. And you can stand uncompromising in the face of temptation because Jesus already has and you have been given his name. How could these Christians summon the courage to stand for Christ in a culture that warred against him? They had to know that their victory was already secure, that their stone had already been given to them and that they had a new name. One that the Pergamum people could not take away, not even with a brass bull. Pray with me.